Aloha. Welcome to The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. I'm Catherine Cruz. Making headway, the Maui Invasive Species Committee says an out-of-the-box solution for the little fire ant infestations appears to be working. We get the scoop on the latest survey from out in the field. We learn more about housing solutions on Maui. A new website hopes to help connect homeowners and those displaced by the wildfires. And heard of the Aristotle effect? How can we apply it as we deal with the housing crisis on the Valley Isle and for that matter, across the state? And we'll hear about a powerful exhibit showcasing the history behind Okinawa and Hawaii that recently opened here on Oahu. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It's been five years since the Maui Invasive Species Committee took a big leap in the battle against the little fire ant, and so far, so good. A pilot project is showing signs of success in East Maui, uh, named for its uh, painful sting, of which can blind animals. The ant nests on the ground and uh, up in the trees. The, the uh, committee, along with help from the Hawaii Ant Lab on the Big Island, devised a strategy to spread what they would like to think is a recipe for success in the seemingly impossible mission to beat back the little fire ant. The invasive species threatens our economy and environment. Brooke Mankin is the invasive ant supervisor for the Maui Invasive Species Committee. We caught up with him yesterday afternoon to get the latest. The last time things were looking good, the little fire ants had been significantly reduced, but they were still present. But now it appears that the little fire ants have been wiped out and we have ceased our aerial operation. Our last treatment was back in February of this year and we're out there now. We're about two thirds of the way through our big survey, which is a whole lot of effort. And we we have not found any little fire ants so far during the survey. And so my fingers are crossed that we have done it. We've gotten rid of them. That's incredible. I mean, because that area is very remote and it's, oh my goodness. Oh yes, there's all sorts of, I mean, it's 175 acres ranging from about a thousand foot elevation all the way down to the sea cliffs. It's full of how bush and tall eucalyptus trees inkberry and hay and overhead grass and cliffs and streams and cattle and pigs and mongoose that are stealing our samples that we're trying to collect ants in and it's very difficult and you know it, we scheduled three weeks for this and we've had more than 30 people working on it and we've got one more week to go so far no sign of little fire ants so you are actually putting out traps with is, peanut butter? Is that right? Yep, that's right. You know, the little fire ants, are, uh, they really love peanut butter, and so that's what we use to attract them. And we have a little plastic vial with a, a dab of peanut butter in it, and we go put it out somewhere that we think the ants might live, like at a base of a tree or something. But essentially, we put it out there for an hour to several hours, depending on how long it takes us to get through our whole section. And we get back and we pick that that sample up. And if there's ants in there, then we bring it back to the lab and we look under a microscope and identify those ants because little fire ants are so very tiny. You can't tell them with your naked eye what species they are. So after that process, we can make a map and see where they are. And like I said, there have been no little fire ants so far, but we're still looking through our ants. We have a grid for the entire 175 acres, and we each have a smartphone or a tablet with that map on it showing the grid. And each person is signed several units to work through, and they spend all week just trying to get in there. They might spend a day cutting trail so that the rest of the week they're able to access those locations more easily. But yeah, they follow that GPS and make sure that they're evenly distributing the samples throughout the whole area into this grid that we're following. And you're really pushing the envelope here. I mean, you're breaking new ground, you know, because you had this pancake batter-like 
consistency with this Beef chemical? liver powder, vegetable oil, xanthan gum, and then an insect growth regulator, which is like a birth control. We're squirting this like pancake batter all over the tops of the trees and hoping for it to drip down to the ground. It's mounted on the bottom of a helicopter. We can take out almost 40 gallons at a time, and we just fly back and forth over the whole area until we've we've coated the entire 175 acres. That was the beginning. That bait goes out there, and the ants go out. They look for it. They eat it. They bring it back to the queens. They feed it to the queens. And the queens, it's just like birth control for people. If we stop feeding it to them, then the queens can begin to reproduce again. And if, as long as they're getting it on a regular schedule, they won't be able to reproduce. And eventually the ants will die of old age. It's not even toxic to them. It's just like a birth control. In February, you know, we'd already conducted two of these surveys and we could see that the ants were disappearing. In the second of these two major surveys, we, we found uh, just a few ants remaining in a couple of spots, in, in two spots that were close to each other. So what that indicated to us is that the ants were on their way out. Um, oftentimes, you know, we know from the groundwork that we do, which uses the same technique with this, this gel bait, we call it, that when we get there and we see just a few ants, it's kind of the tail end. It's the death throes of that population. So what we did was... We, we waited and we went back and we looked at just those spots again after we stopped our aerial treatments in February. And when we went back, we did not find any ants there. And that was what we expected and we were very excited about that. Now here we are in October and we're back in the same area and we've been through that spot already. And again, no ants there. And so the ants are they're either gone or they're hard to find, in which case, you know, we're going to continue doing this work. We need to survey several years beyond when we can no longer find them. That's to make sure that if they are there and our imperfect technique does not detect them, then we would find them at a subsequent survey after maybe their population had um, grown somewhat and become detectable. And that's why we do multiple surveys over time to really make sure that we've totally wiped them out. And then how much uh, do you estimate that you have spent on this project? That's a tricky question. I'm not sure with those numbers. We were estimating, though, that each treatment, including the cost of the helicopter and the bait itself and personnel, was somewhere between ten to fifteen thousand dollars per treatment we did 24 treatments over three years and then the survey work that we're doing now with so many staff for several weeks that's also expensive and i don't have numbers on that but we have fortunately been funded adequately by our county here our mayor's office and the county council has been extremely supportive of the work that we do and that is what is enabled us to attack the largest infestation in the state outside of the Big Island and wipe it out entirely. The fact that you've had success there in this Nuhiku area makes me hopeful, like, okay, can we use it here on Oahu, let's say over at Kualoa Ranch, you know, had an infestation. Would it work there? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, that we've proved that this technique is effective, and that's the last piece that was needed for this sort of large area control of little fire ants in places that are difficult to get to. Other islands can and should adopt this technique to tackle large infestations like you're talking about. This is validation for what you've been doing for the last five years. Absolutely. You said something about, you know, this is new and, and absolutely, as far as we can tell, nobody has done this using this methodology and technique anywhere else in the world. And so it's a world first to use the gel bait from the helicopter in uh, this rugged, wet terrain and be successful at eradicating a large infestation of little fire ants. And then remind our listeners again why this invasive species is so destructive to our environment. Oh, little fire ants are miserable. They are life-changing. You know, all you need to do is talk to your friends in Hilo 
and ask them about what it's like to live with little fire ants. You know, they form these super colonies and these massive continuous infestations, and they live on the ground and in the trees, and they rain out of the trees. They can come out when it's windy or if you brush against a tree, and they can cover you in little tiny stinging ants. And the next thing you know, you have an itchy, persistent, stinging rash that can last for weeks. It's a huge impact to agriculture, the economy, and recreation, hunting, you name it. Life on the Big Island with little fire ants in the places that are infested is not the paradise that it used to be. Well, Maui seems to be leading the way in so many areas. The county has its own ag department now, and the fact that they've committed funding for this, you know, is a positive thing. You know, because, you know, we've done the stories about pets, uh, horses becoming blind because they've gotten stung by these ants. It's not a good thing. Absolutely, it's not a good thing. And, you know, we're lucky, lucky here on Maui to have been funded the way that we have been. And there's an opportunity right now for um, the islands like Oahu and Kauai to get that same treatment. I sure hope that authorities and people that have the ability to fund those projects are aware that the life on those islands is going to change dramatically if they don't get out there and make sure that this work happens. They have a chance now to reverse and stop their island from becoming overrun by little fire ants, and it needs to be taken. The gel bait was developed by the Hawaii Ant Lab, and they have been our close partner throughout this whole thing. We've done that, this eradication, in partnership with them, and I believe that Hawaii Ant Lab is very interested in publishing these results, and so we would collaborate on that. That was Brooke uh, Mankin, who's with the Maui Invasive Species Committee. He says about 30 people from various groups like the Koki Frog Working Group, the Maui Nui Seabird Recovery Project, as well as invasive plant and myconia teams are taking part in the Nahiku survey. This also happens to be Spot the Ant Month, so you may be hearing more about their uh, work that is underway. Look for links on the conversation page of our website later today to find out more. Today's reality check is a deep dive into the black hole of Honolulu's Department of Planning and Permitting. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Christina Jedra is on the line with us today. Good morning, Christina. Hey, Catherine. It's good to be here. Yes, so this is a tale of two permits. It is, yes. I opened my story comparing two very similar projects, both submitted in 2019, about the same size, same budget, even similar location. Um, except the difference is the the applicants and the time it took for DPP to approve them. That's the Department of Planning and Permitting in Honolulu. So one took 10 months, the other took seven days. And the one that took seven days was submitted by Bill Wong. That's the architect that is now uh, headed to prison for bribing the department over several years. Um, And that really illustrates just the wide disparities that exist in permitting in Honolulu, even for similar projects. Yeah, so it really does kind of show what was going on. I mean, you know, we've had the headlines and the the indictments and all, and and, and many people are are serving their time now. But, uh, yeah, this was just interesting to just do like a case study. Right. And it's just one example of um, many that I found when I did a deep dive data analysis of the city's permitting data, which is publicly available. I've spent uh, several months now digging through this and analyzing it and looking at it from different angles. And what I found is that there's kind of a small group of permit applicants that on average tend to move faster than other applicants. Um, I looked at different categories, um, looking at, you know, kind of apples to apples, the same kinds of projects compared to the same kinds of projects. And um, there's just people that are are somehow better at uh, making the system work for them than others. Now, to be clear, they're still waiting longer than people might wait on the mainland, but um, in relative terms, they are speedier. Well... I, I know that this was a, a subject of a, a play uh, by the actors group that I happened to bump into you at that yeah. performance. 
That's right. The Actors Group, a local community theater organization, they were so frustrated with their permitting process for their own theater that they made a play uh, called Building Permit about that process. And I, I quote the, uh, the star and director, Eric Nomoto, in my story. Um, he points out that, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for the delays at DPP and reasons why some people may move faster than others. Bribery, of course, uh, is well known and uh, definitely a topic of his play, but he also points out that the applicant bears some responsibility as well. Um, in their case, they had a pro bono architect that was helping them with their plans. And he said, we really couldn't expect him to, you know, get right back to DPP with comments um, right away, considering he, you know, had to make a living. So uh, there's a lot of elements to this that explain why some move faster than others, but it's definitely frustrating, I think, for everyone involved who needs and, a permit. And you also c uncovered some emails that helped to explain what was going on. Yes, in a couple cases, um, people just kind of push the right political buttons. Um, so two folks reached out to Mayor Rick Blangiardi asking, where's my permit? And uh, he asked DPP about that. DPP interpreted that as a directive to expedite those people. So in, in one of the cases, that person got a permit uh, about a month quicker than they would have otherwise. Um, in another case, um, they also were pushed to the front of the line, but after I asked about it, they were returned back to the normal queue. So um, going to the top can, can help some folks, um, you know, and I, I don't blame them. If you're desperate, you're, you're gonna try anything just to move on with your life. No one wants to be in the DPP's queue forever. Right, right, but that's not really the way things are done. I mean, like mm -hmm. you said, it, it, it's the influence part is not a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, not ideal, but uh, it is the way that our system uh, works, unfortunately, in a broken system. It's just kind of crabs in a barrel. Everyone's just trying to, to get their project through. Right, and the department is trying to clean up uh, its act and, in, and institute new policies so that uh, it's real clear as to, you know, if it's an inquiry, it's an inquiry. It's not, uh, you know, trying to influence pedal. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, well, interesting story. Um, make very thank good you. reading, but thank you so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. Uh, that was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Uh, check out her story uh, on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, Ohana. Since 1929, providing fresh water to Oahu with ideas to help reduce water waste. Information booklet at protectoahuwater.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. I'm Willis Barnstone, translator of the Restored New Testament. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about my love for poetry and sacred texts. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Chamber Music Hawaii. Trace Omble and pianist Thomas Yee premiere Hard Boiled Wonderland, Michael Thomas Fumai's Piano Concerto, this Friday at Doris Duke Theater. Tickets at chambermusichawaii.org. It's time to get down. Who knew when we started this year that our housing crisis would get worse? But the Maui wildfires did help to do that. Today, HBR reporter Catherine Cluett Pactel highlights one man's efforts to help get displaced families into housing. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, so tell us uh, what you found. Sure. So more than two months after the fire, as we are now, there are still about 7,000 people on Maui displaced by the fire who lost their homes. Most of those people are still staying in hotels and Airbnbs and trying to find longer-term solutions. A Maui-born Native Hawaiian software developer has just released a website that helps 
connect the dots for both homeowners and those displaced from the fire looking for long-term housing. It's called Maui Hale Match. You can find it at MauiHaleMatch.org. The developer is Matt Jahowski, and immediately after the fire, he and his family opened their own home to those in need, but it took them over a week to find a good fit. And so at the same time, his sister was volunteering at Maui Rapid Response, which is a nonprofit that's been involved um, in helping folks from the fire from day one. And they were collecting data from fire victims about their needs, of course, much of which have to do with housing. And they had two Google spreadsheets, one with information on families needing housing and another, he says, with information on landlords and homeowners. Jahowski says it was a painstaking process for volunteers to collect this data, and he set out to try and build a tool to help streamline it. The goal of the project is to make it as easy as possible for landlords and homeowners to connect directly with our fire survivors who need long-term housing. According to the Red Cross, we still have nearly 7,000 people housed in hotels, and I'm not sure what the number is that's housed in short-term Airbnbs, but that's a lot of people who more than two months after the fire still don't have long-term housing. So my site is all about connecting the homeowners and landlords uh, directly to them, you know, on, on the parameters that they match on. So, so there's not any wasted time. But basically, they're matching on location, number of people, number of bedrooms, whether they have pets or not, and whether their rent parameters are in line. So the really interesting thing is I never set out to be like the clearinghouse for housing data. It just turned out that when I started getting a lot of people making housing requests and I started to create some charts for myself to, to make sure the site was working, that I realized I have some really valuable up-to-date data that nobody else has. And I have a kuleana to share that um, with our decision makers. Good for him for, you know, being innovative and, you know, willing to find a solution uh, to this problem. For sure. And he spent hundreds of hours over a month and a half of his own time and money organizing data collected partially by Maui Rapid Response and gathering much on his own as well to launch Maui Hale Match. And now Maui Rapid Response has officially... um, adopted the project and is supporting his efforts. So the sign-up process um, takes less than five minutes for both landlords and renters. Um, Both parties enter their name, their email, their location, and either what they need for a size of bedrooms or what they're offering and what they're able to pay in rent or what they're offering for rent. And and the website makes that match. once the homeowner selects a match, the family is notified and they can choose whether or not to connect with the landlord. And from there, the rest of the negotiations take place outside of the platform. And one of the issues that his data has brought to light is that people are renting houses at ridiculous prices, way out of reach for Maui fire survivors. The difference between what most families can afford and the rent at which many houses are listed is often between $700 and $1,500. And that's not including many homes priced at more than $10,000 per month, which Jahowski says he excluded from the data. Now Jahowski is sharing this data with every lawmaker and leader he can and just hoping it will make a difference. Basically, everyone knows that rent is too expensive. As far as I can tell, none of these leaders have ever had someone tell them how much it's too expensive. And that's what my data is showing. And if you don't know exactly how much it's too expensive, you can't even begin to craft an effective solution to close that gap. There's people sitting on empty homes in West Maui, the number one place where people want to be, empty homes. And these people think it's reasonable to charge them $10,000, $12,000 a month in rent. And they're confused why no one will pay that. And at the same time, they're saying, well, I can't go lower because I have tourists who will pay these rates. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, uh, just a dilemma, you know, but we need so much housing. So much housing. And Sterling Higa is executive director of um, Housing Hawaii's Future. It's a nonprofit aimed at building a younger generation who are educated and engaged to address this huge statewide housing crisis, of course, much of which right now is on Maui. Higa says there was already a huge housing crisis before the fire. And now, of course, it's even more difficult for people to afford a roof over their heads. So the official statistics, if it's 7,000, underestimate the true scope of the problem. 
it's tens of thousands of people on Maui that are struggling with their housing costs every month and rent first. So these families on a daily basis are having to make difficult decisions just to afford a roof over their head. And in the absence of reforms that make housing less expensive, more and more of these families will leave. Some of these families will become homeless and others will continue to make these tough sacrifices just to have a home. Matt's data shows, I think conclusively, that there is a large gap between what fire survivors can pay and what the housing market has on offer. There are only two paths to solve that. Either you make more inventory available by reallocating housing that's either vacant or in the short-term rental category into long-term rentals or for sale, or you add thousands of new housing units. A mix of both approaches is going to be necessary given the scale of the crisis. We're a state that has underbuilt housing for decades. So even with this crisis, the odds that we will solve the crisis purely by building you know, thousands of new housing units in the next couple of years is unlikely, but we still have to try. Yeah, you have to try. Otherwise, without the housing, we're going to lose a lot of workers. They're going to go to Vegas or somewhere else where it's cheaper. Right. So that's um, one of the things that both um, Higa and Jahowski talked about was just that, you know, Higa estimated thousands of Maui residents will leave um, and make this difficult decision to find another place to live. And he describes that ripping apart the fabric of the island, uh, the type of impact that that type of, um, you know, exodus that many people will find necessary at this point just to find housing. And he calls Hawaii a, a data desert. So he says that Hawaii is lacking accurate, up-to-date housing information, and that's one of the challenges that everyone is facing right now. So the, the Hawaii Housing Planning Study is completed every five years by the Hawaii Housing Finance Development Corporation. And it was last updated in 2019. So that's what uh, lawmakers are using largely right now to make housing decisions. Of course, there are some other studies, um, but Higa and Jahowski say that the main data that policymakers are using is just really outdated. So that's one of the reasons that Jahowski's data is so critical that he has collected on this website to really understanding the housing situation and hopefully getting lawmakers to enact changes. Yeah, well, good for him for using his skills to, you know, see this need and, and then, you know, the solution. Uh, so, yeah, we wish good luck to him. Um, match, it's kind of like match.com, right? <laughs> Maui, MauiHoleyMatch.org okay. is where you can find the data and the housing information to connect if you are in need. All right. Thanks so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HBR's Catherine Clewitt-Pactel talking to us about an idea to help connect those families left homeless by the Maui fires to get them into more permanent shelter. Support for HPR comes from HomeWorks Construction, a general contractor providing comprehensive services from design to permitting to construction for now and in the future. Specializing in multifamily spaces and ADUs, homeworkshawaii.com. Today on The Daily, President Biden's visit to Israel and America's diplomatic scramble to prevent a wider war in the Middle East. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from the Chamber of Sustainable Commerce with a bill outlining community collab October 19th at the Entrepreneur's Sandbox in person and online. Registration at chamberofsustainablecommerce.org. We're 
working groups. We see them at our jobs. We see them in state and county government. So how effective are they? That's the subject of today's The Long View. Here to discuss that is our contributing editor, Neil Milner. Good morning. Good morning. And we're talking about this in relation to the housing problem that we have. We're talking about it in, in the housing problem and in the Lahaina problem because both of them are using working groups. Uh, they, uh, in fact, the one on uh, Governor Green's proclamation about housing is called the Working Group on Housing. And the legislature has set up six working groups, I believe, to look at the uh, situation in Lahaina. Now, calling something a working group does not mean that the group actually works. And so I got interested in why do some groups work and why they don't. And it turns out that Google did a huge study called Project Aristotle to look at this kind of situation, to look at what groups work and what groups don't work. Google is full of work groups. That's how they operate. They, uh, they believe in it very much. And uh, it was no surprise that considering how data-oriented Google is, that they came up with tons of data. And here you can hear how this study worked. Back in 2012, Google embarked on a quest to unravel the secret behind high-performing teams. The project, codenamed Aristotle in a tribute to Aristotle's quote, the whole is greater than the sum of its part, was born. And for two years, no stone, or in Google's world, no data point, was left unturned. Google, known for its data-driven approach, delved into the work reality of its teams. They wanted to understand what differentiates the high-performing teams from those that don't perform that well. Searching for a kind of high-performance algorithm and armed with extensive resources, Google's researchers studied 180 diverse teams within their corporate environment. So what did they find? Well, the first thing is what they didn't find. Uh, what, it turns out, makes no difference. The personalities of the people in a group makes no difference. The uh, amount of expertise you have makes no difference. You don't have to spend a lot of time selecting people carefully beforehand because that didn't make any difference. All these kind of combos, and this must have driven Google nuts because they're so data-oriented or else it got them more interested, um, none of them worked. What it turns out, and it's ironic that it's an Aristotle greater than the sum of its parts, is that the most important thing is group norms are the unwritten rules that exist in a group. Regardless of the composition of the group, it's the norms that develop that make groups work. And the most important norm has to do with, with what Google calls, and it's related to some other things in a business school organization research, psychological safety. That groups, working groups, do productive work if there is a feeling of psychological safety. What psychological safety means is essentially that you feel comfortable stating your opinion without worrying about getting bitten back for doing it. And groups that, that allow everybody, that where everybody speaks and where there isn't a kind of bite back, where there is a kind of sensitivity toward people's feelings um, seem to work the best. Now, what's interesting about this is that in some ways it's common sense, but it really isn't because we don't, th we don't think about that as being the center of what makes task-oriented group works. It doesn't sound tough enough. The other part of it, though, is that it sounds a little bit woo-woo. Uh, Right, it's not. It's the kind of thing that you learn from, I say, social workers, whatever, helping professionals. But it turns out that the essence of how a group works, and this is all kinds of very different sort of people, has to do with feeling safe about opening your mouth, participating, um, and uh, people in the group being aware of what your feelings are—a kind of uh, psychological acuity. So. That's what Google found out. Now, <laughs> Google's are, are task groups, and, and uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of people that are in, in Google groups are engineers, and so you don't think about them as being like that, but it made a difference there. If you had that kind of, those kinds of norms, and you can't just have a formula for develop, developing them, those sorts of things work. So. 
there are reasons to think that applies to the kind of work groups that were working groups that we're talking about in the state, and there are reasons to see things as being a little bit different. So yeah, if we're we're talking, you know, the housing groups in the legislature. You want to be able to have a safe space so you can raise questions about certain things without fear that you're going to get, I don't know, bullied or yeah, beaten down. Yeah. And that's, I mean, there are two things about legislatures. First of all, a lot of this stuff happens in public, which means that your behavior is under a different kind of scrutiny than in than work groups. On the other hand, a lot of it appears in, in private where you don't know what's going on. But the, the, if, if you say to people that the, the kind of legislative norm that you're, the kind of norm that you need here is psychological safety. It counters the lore that we hear about the legislatures. We just hear there are a lot of bullies in the legislature. There's a lot of horse trading in the legislature. You don't hear about this kind of behavior, but maybe it's there for the good groups. And one of the reasons that legislative groups don't work at times is because it's not there, because it's all about scoring points. It's all about uh, pushing yourself to, uh, to, you know, to score in other ways. The, the issue for the working group on housing is really different because that's a whole different kind of group. They're, they're, this is a new group of people working together. They're, it sounds like fairly high-level political officials plus some people from the outside. We don't know. But I, here's another reason that you might want to think why the, this is a valuable bit of information to make groups work, uh, these two groups work here. One of the constant beefs, and I share it about the way this state runs, is that nothing gets done after the laws are passed. That you pass a law and then it disappears somewhere. Well, a lot of it disappears because there, it's groups of people that have to make it work. And maybe those groups of people need to understand more about the role of psychological safety. Yeah, and, and you think, you know, we're here for this uh, uh, mission, you know? Yeah, sure. And then you got to, you know, you got to haul your coli down, get to work, and just push forward and that doesn't seem to be the way the groups work okay so we got to look toward a uh, greek philosopher aristotle well the whole is great yeah well you just have to decide that some of the things that may be commonsensical are very hard to actually in- implement and some of the things that you think are, are kind of mm, not so important seem to be in the center so let me mention one more thing that i got interested in here um, and it's about other ways that groups do things i've always been interested in and uh, in leaders in groups of people that have to get their group to change their behavior right away, like coaches and like uh, people who are in the performance business. So I found this uh, tape, this video of Leonard Bernstein directing a symphony orchestra purely with his face. And I put it on, you can, you can check it out on the site because it, there are two things. It reminds you different ways that groups interact and one of the questions you should act is ask is how could they what did it take for him to be able to present himself that way as the leader of a work group the orchestra in order for him to be able to do that okay all right so the listeners out there need to uh, 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 check this out we'll have that on our website but we're gonna then leave uh, Leave the segment off with a little bit of... A little bit of Haydn. <laughs> Haydn yeah, okay. a little bit of Haydn. All right. Thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome. Take care. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Theater Center, presenting Alan Cumming is Not Acting His Age. The actor and entertainer performs his new cabaret show, An Evening of Story and Song, this Saturday. Tickets at hawaiitheater.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we find out what Governor Green has in store for the Hawaii Annual Code Challenge. 
We'll find out how the program transitions from one administration to the next and what we can expect in the 8th Annual State Hackathon. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Pacific University, offering the state's inaugural Doctor of Physical Therapy degree, a hybrid 24-month program. Working to sustain the island's healthcare workforce, more at hpu.edu. is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On today's Manu Minute, we've got the song of a little hopping honey creeper found only on Maui. Here's the University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart. Maui Alawahio, or Maui Creeper, is a small insectivorous Hawaiian honey creeper found only on Maui. They range in color from olive green in females to mostly bright yellow in adult males. And like many birds that eat insects, both sexes have short, straight bills. They were once found across Maui Nui, including Molokai, Lanai, and Kaha'olawe, but now live only on the slopes of Haleakala above about 3,000 feet, primarily in Ohia forests, but can also be found in non-native forests dominated by pine and eucalyptus. Nowadays, the best place to see Alawahio and hear their warbling song is at Hosmer's Grove at Haleakala National Park and also Polipoli State Park. Alawahio hop and creep along trunks and branches of trees, constantly flipping over bark and lichen in search of insects and larvae. These tiny four and a half inch long birds set up big territories of two to five acres and are unusual in the bird world of Hawaii in that the young year-old birds often stick around to help their parents take care of their babies at the nest instead of trying to breed on their own. This is known as cooperative breeding and can occur when the young can pass more of their genes indirectly to the next generation by helping their parents raise their siblings than they can by trying to have their own babies before they're ready. Latest estimates indicate there may still be about 100,000 of these birds left on East Maui, but this is about a 40% decrease since the 1990s. Like most other honey creepers, avian malaria transmitted by introduced mosquitoes is the primary cause for this decline. It's been shown that about three out of four aloahio will die from just a single mosquito bite. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, offering nature tours on Hawaii Island with adventures including swimming in private waterfalls, Mauna Kea stargazing, and exploring active volcanoes. More at hawaii-forest.com. exhibit at the University of Hawaii West Oahu campus hopes to promote peace by reminding us of the atrocities of war. It's entitled Himiuri and Hawaii. It focuses on a group of Okinawan women memorialized on the island after the sacrifices they made during World War II. It also highlights their connection to our islands. The Conversations Russell Subiano spoke to retired UH professor Joyce Chinin about the exhibit. If anyone understands the relationship between the island of Okinawa, which sits off the coast of Japan, and Hawaii, it's Joyce Chinen. In addition to being a retired sociology professor, she's also the former director of the University of Hawaii's Center for Okinawan Studies. Japanese immigrants first came to Hawaii in 1885, but Okinawans didn't arrive in our islands until 15 years later, in 1900, as part of a later wave of Japanese looking for better life opportunities. Okinawans were initially, because of Okinawa's history, the Ryukyu Islands history with Kondo mainland Japan, Okinawans were kind of discouraged or were prevented from being part of the immigration labor. 
you know, that migration, initial migration of Japanese to Hawaii from 1885 and so on. So it wasn't until 1899 that Kyuzo, Toyama Kyuzo, was considered the father of Okinawan immigration, was able to secure permission to recruit laborers to come to Hawaii or Okinawans to come to Hawaii to work on the uh, sugar plantations. But the exhibit at UH West Oahu isn't about the history of Okinawan immigrants working on sugar or pineapple plantations or laying down roots in Hawaii. It tells a much darker story, one that took a horrific turn in the closing days of World War II on the island of Okinawa. The 1945 Battle of Okinawa left 200,000 dead, including some 94,000 Okinawan civilians. These include local schoolgirls who were forced to serve at the front line as nurses, known as the Himeyuri Student Corps. If you've never heard of the Himeyuri, it's okay. Most people haven't. There is information about them on the internet, but it's limited, and most of it is in Japanese. This is the gist of it. A total of 222 female students and 18 teachers attended the Okinawa Daiichi Women's High School and the Okinawa Shihan Women's School in 1945. They were just your average young women getting a good education until the Japanese Imperial Army turned them into a nursing unit to support the war, which by 1945 was getting increasingly difficult for Japan. They were generally like junior high to high school students. Many of them were in general studies, but then there were there were also those who were studying to be teachers. They were then, with the war effort, transformed, made to become nurses with limited training, but they were basically to support the Japanese military because in the lead-up to the war, there was a whole push by the militarism in Japan to prepare people for Okinawa as well as mainland Japan for the war effort. And so the boys, junior high school boys and so on, became known as the Blood and Iron Corps, who were carrying munitions, running lines, communication lines and so on for the Japanese military. And then the girls were made into nurses, nursing support people. If you're thinking, wait, wait, junior high school and high school girls were forced to be war nurses by the Japanese army, that's exactly what happened. Over 200 young women forced into the war effort as nurses with little to no medical training. Many of them tended to wounded and dying Japanese soldiers in makeshift hospitals in caves. Imagine being a young woman in 1945 in Okinawa, excited about getting an education with hopes of becoming a teacher one day, then your country tells you your job is now a temporary assignment to care for broken and bloodied young soldiers. Maybe one of the reasons this story isn't more widely known is because 136 of the 222 Himeyuri women were killed during the three-month Battle of Okinawa. Many others killed themselves by taking cyanide or using hand grenades or jumping off jagged cliffs near the Arasaki seashore. Chinen says it took the feminist movement in the 1960s to open the door for more war stories about women to be told. As a child growing up, many of us, particularly those of us who are in our 60s, 70s and so on, we heard about the Himeyuri. They were kind of spoken about, but in the actual kind of historical materials, generally, you know, well, until very recently, so the second wave of feminism, we don't have a whole lot of things on women's history. So Himeyuri, 
people knew about uh, informally, but there wasn't a whole lot of research on it. So this is significant in the sense that it's first time, you know, focuses on women. Well, not just women, but this is focusing on the interrelationships between Hawaii and Okinawa, but through the lens of the Himeyuri. The lives sacrificed by the Himeyuri are memorialized at the Himeyuri Peace Museum in Okinawa. Among the items on display are portraits of all the young women who died and the testimonials of the survivors. Some of the same visuals and information being shared at the Himeyuri and Hawaii exhibit at UH West Oahu, a project that took over four years to complete. What we have are photographs of the artifacts that are in the museum. So you have to actually go to the museum to see the actual artifacts. But, you know, combs and little personal objects that the girls carry. You know, we have photographs of those things, fountain pens and simple things like that. So we have photographs of those things. And these are panels that are kind of set up. They're nicely uh, traveling panels. So they're lightweight. They can be rolled up. It's really remarkable how uh, we were able to get these. The Himeyuri Peace Museum in Okinawa is dedicated to peace and uses images and stories of the Himeyuri to remind visitors of the horrors of war. The Himeyuri and Hawaii exhibit at UH West Oahu hopes to accomplish the same goal, but also examines the relationship between the Himeyuri and our islands. For example, one of the instructors at the schools the Himeyuri girls attended before the war was born in Hawaii and traveled back to Okinawa to teach. And at least one of the Himeyuri survivors is known to have married a man from Hawaii and spent the remainder of her days here. Chinen says the exhibit is also a reminder that peace starts on an individual level. I think it's important to underscore the kind of individual acts of kindness and generosity, but also a, a realization that it's so easy to slip into wartime hysteria. And we really need to work on consciously promoting peace. And one of the ways to do that, I think, is educational interchanges. So I think those kinds of person-to-person relationships we need to do those, more of those kinds of things beyond just the kind of international, you know, nation-to-nation kinds of negotiations and exchanges. I mean, we have to do those too, but in addition to that, otherwise it's so easy to get sucked into the, the fog of war, the language of preparing for war and, you know, getting hooked into that. That was retired UH professor Joyce Chin and talking with HVR's Russell Subiano. The Himiuri and Hawaii exhibit will be on display in the James and Abigail Campbell Library on the UH, UH West Oahu campus until January 31st, 2024. Well, that does it for us for right now. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from Governor Josh Green. Got questions for him? Leave your feedback on our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online by searching for The Conversation on our website or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation. Mm-hmm.